Hello and welcome to Horror Story Podcast. I'm your host Trish and I want to say to all you three to five listeners out there, thanks for joining me. (laughs) I'm excited to share my love of all things spooky, creepy, and scary with you. I just want to preface this by saying I'm a fan, not an expert. I do my best to research topics and give my analysis of things, but I'm always open to input and feedback. If you have a different take on an urban legend, feel free to share it in the comment section of an Instagram post. Speaking of spooky, it's officially spooky season, people. I've got my fall candle lit, my pumpkin spice coffee in hand, and I'm ready to dive into this week's episode. We're going to be covering three urban legends today, so let's jump right in. First up on the list is The Hook. This is a story that's been circulating since the 1950s. There are a few variations of the story, but the most common one is that there's a couple on a date. They're parked in some secluded spot where they're listening to the radio and making out, or as it was disturbingly called back then, necking. I'm sorry, I don't know why, but necking just makes it sound super gross. It's right up there with the word moist for me. (laughs) Anyway, so the couple's makeout session is abruptly interrupted by a news alert over the air that says an inmate of a psychiatric asylum has escaped and is on the loose. He's described as incredibly dangerous with a hook for a hand. The girl is scared and upset and wants to go home immediately. The boy, hoping to engage in more than just necking, ew, tries to keep her calm and carry on, but the girl is sufficiently freaked out and adamant about leaving. The boy is frustrated, annoyed, and speeds away back to the girl's house. When he gets out of the car and walks around to the passenger side to let her out, he notices a bloody hook attached to the passenger side car door. This legend was said to be inspired by the Lover's Lane murders in Texarkana in the 1940s, which also was the inspiration for the movie The Town That Dreaded Sundown. This legend actually made its way into a Dear Abby article in the 1960s. It reads, Dear Abby, if you are interested in teenagers, you will print this story. I don't know whether it's true or not, but it doesn't matter because it served its purpose for me. A fellow and his date pulled into their favorite lover's lane to listen to the radio and do a little necking. The music was interrupted by an announcer who said there was an escaped convict in the area who had served time for rape and robbery. He was described as having a hook instead of a right hand. The couple became frightened and drove away. When the boy took his girl home, he went around to open the car door for her. Then he saw a hook on the door handle. I will never park to make out as long as I live. I hope this does the same for other kids. Signed, Jeanette. Before I jump into some of the interpretations or symbolism of this legend, I just have a couple questions. (laughs) Was the killer institutionalized, like, with the hook? Who would allow that? Did he have someone fashion a hook for him after he escaped, like Merle Dixon? But how could that be? Because it would have had to have been like permanently attached to a stump of some kind for it to rip off his arm and be left all bloody on the passenger side car door. Okay, so there are a lot of interpretations of this legend, some obvious, some not. 
At first listen, it's easy to write this off as just another cautionary tale regarding having premarital sex. And given that most of the references for this legend happened during the 50s when dancing was damn near perverse, police see Elvis's hip swinging, it makes sense. But it's not just a warning for young adults about engaging in sex, it's also agenda-pushing. American folklorist Bill Ellis poses that maybe this isn't a warning, but really the hook man represents adults of society trying to be the morality police and control behaviors or prevent progress and revolution. I'm sure their heads exploded when the story failed miserably and society went rocketing off into the 60s and 70s with free love and self-expression. There are some interpretations that go a little deeper and I found really interesting. There is a take by American folklorist Alan Dundas, who's famous for his Freudian interpretations of just about everything and did not disappoint here. To Dundas, the hook was a phallic symbol. When the young man in our legend gets rejected and drops his date off at home, the hook seemingly amputated and left on the car door is supposed to symbolize castration. We can basically wrap this up by saying rejection was emasculating for him. Other interpretations have included that the hookman actually represented fear of disabled people, or in some cases, nonconformity. There is a Swedish folklorist whose name I'll surely butcher, Bengt af Klintberg, so sorry, who said that this tale warned against those who decided not to follow the pack and threatened those who are normal. What do you think? The hookman? Actual psychopath? Or just a Karen? Okay. So now we're getting into a real mother of a legend here, Bloody Mary. Most people know Bloody Mary as a game commonly played at sleepovers. You and your friends would go into the bathroom, stand in front of a mirror, turn off the lights, and chant Bloody Mary a varying number of times, and then wait. Yes, that's right. We used to go into a bathroom, summon a demon, and hope that she wasn't real and wasn't going to obliterate us. So I have to admit, I'm guilty. I've definitely tried to summon Miss Mary before, but I don't thankfully have any stories about experiencing the real Bloody Mary. So I'm going to get into the history behind this legend. There are a few theories about who the real BM is. We'll get into a few, and then I'm going to tell you who I think the real Slim Shady is and which ones are just imitating. First up, we have Mary Tudor. Mary was the daughter of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. She is the first queen to rule England. Catholicism reigned supreme in England at this time. Henry wanted to divorce Catherine and marry his lady-in-waiting, Anne Boleyn. Unfortunately for Henry, divorce was a big no-no in the eyes of the Catholic Church. So he said, screw Catholicism, I'm going to start my own religion. Enter Protestantism. Henry thought, this way I could be a pious piece of shit, but also divorce and remarry to my heart's content. It's said that he then declared Mary illegitimate and would only welcome her back into the family, reinstate her status and subsequent claim to the throne, if she acknowledged his new religion and his title as king and ruler of this new church. Like seriously, fuck off, Henry. Have you ever seen a picture of Henry VIII? Dude looks like he smells like Italian hoagies. Okay, I found a quote about Henry VIII that I just, it really paints a, a perfect picture of him. Our perception of Henry VIII is justifiably that of an obese and bloodthirsty authoritarian. I'm not one for body shaming, but if there is ever one to shame, it's this jabroni. 
Okay, thank you for following me on this side quest. Back to Mary Tudor. So Mary was a devout Catholic, and to regain her status, she'd have to turn her back on Catholicism. And she did, but not for long. Once Mary gained control of the throne, she quickly used her power to reinstate Catholicism and former heresy laws. This basically meant if you didn't uphold the beliefs of the monarchy, a.k.a. her beliefs, a.k.a. Catholicism, you were committing treason. And Mary was on a mission. Any and all heretics were either exiled, but more commonly, burned at the stake. It was thought that Mary murdered 200 to 300 people during her reign, thus earning her the nickname Bloody Mary. Speaking of burning at the stake, let's talk about our second suspected real Bloody Mary, Mary Worth. I have seen a couple different incredibly brief and vague blurbs about Mary Worth's story, but she almost always seems to come up when the history of Bloody Mary is being discussed. Mary lived in Salem, Massachusetts during the time of the witch trials and was burned at the stake for suspected witchcraft. Some say Mary was a known healer who people would send their children to when they were ill, but one day children started disappearing, leaving Mary to be blamed and put on trial for witchcraft. However, the History of Massachusetts blog has the official list of all accused witches during the trials, and our dear old pal Mary Worth did not make the cut. With no paper trail for dear old Mare and limited information to go off of, for me, she's least likely to be voted Bloody Mary. All right, we arrive at our last nominee, my personal favorite, and vote for the real Bloody Mary. Submitted for the approval of the Midnight Society, it's Elizabeth Bathory, the Queen of Blood. She is believed to have tortured and murdered up to 600 young women between the 16th and 17th century. Elizabeth was born August 7, 1560, in Nierbator, Hungary. She was a product of incest as her parents were first cousins. It was said that Elizabeth, from a young age, had witnessed many atrocities, but never really appeared to be shaken by them. There is one account of old Sweetie Pie Lizzie laughing as she witnessed a man convicted of stealing being sewn into the body of a horse as his punishment. I mean, fucking hell. Lizzie really said, You merely adopted the dark. I was born in it, molded by it. That was my Bane voice. I'll never do that again. I'm so sorry. <laughs> anyway, fun fact, her nephew apparently was Prince of Transylvania. Kind of badass. Elizabeth married Count Ferenc Nadasdi, also known as the Black Knight of Hungary, when she was 14 years old. Together, they had five children, although two died as infants. Count Nadasdi spent most of his time as a soldier in the Ottoman-Hungarian War. It was said that he was an absolutely brutal man on the battlefield. So, obviously, this was a match made in sadistic heaven. When Ferenc and Elizabeth did get to hang, they bonded over their shared love of violence. Some believe it was Ferenc who taught Elizabeth some of the various methods of torture she would later use on her victims. For example, he taught Elizabeth to oil pieces of rolled paper, slip them in between the toes of her victim, and then light them on fire. Now that's romance. Ferenc supposedly participated in the torment and killing of young servant girls with Lizzie as well. 
When Ferenc died in 1604, Elizabeth became even more sadistic and recruited trusted members of her staff as accomplices in these heinous acts, two of whom were suspected as witches. Elizabeth's typical M.O. was to lure in and hire young peasant girls from surrounding villages to perform various jobs like sewing and cleaning, but if the girl made a mistake, Elizabeth and co. unleashed hell upon the girl. It could start out with a beating or being repeatedly stabbed with long sewing needles. Other completely twisted torture methods Elizabeth used were driving needles into fingers, whipping them with stinging nettles, biting them, and burning their flesh, including the genitals, with a branding iron. She covered her victims in honey and allowed insects to feed on them. There's even a mention that Elizabeth forced one of her victims to cook and eat her own flesh. All of this would eventually end in the girl's death. One rumor, and perhaps what Elizabeth is best known for, is that she would drain the blood of her victims so she could drink and bathe in it in hopes to preserve beauty and youth. However, there's little to support this claim. Eventually, rumors and the noticeable multitude of missing young girls finally reached King Matthias II, who ruled Hungary at this time. The king promptly started an investigation. He employed his highest-ranking officer, Georgi Thurzo, to head this investigation. Thurzo had actually been a friend of Elizabeth's late husband, Ferenc. It was said that on his deathbed, Ferenc had asked Thurzo to look out for Elizabeth. Clearly, his allegiance now lied with the king. Thurzo launched his investigation, speaking with those who claimed to have escaped the countess's torture and former servants that spoke of blood-drenched castle walls. By late 1610, Thurzo felt he had sufficient evidence to convict Elizabeth. He arrived at Bathory Castle and apprehended Elizabeth and her torture crew. Elizabeth immediately swore her innocence, claiming the heinous crimes were carried out by her accomplices, not her. Her assistants in these acts faced a trial and were put to death soon after. Thurzo, stand-up guy that he is, to honor his former friendship with Ferenc decided Elizabeth would not face a public and humiliating murder trial. He decided to declare her guilty and lock her in her own dungeon, the site of all the crimes she is said to have committed. During her remaining years, she maintained her innocence. Elizabeth died in 1614. It is theorized that Elizabeth never actually committed any of the crimes she was accused of, and that this was actually a power play by King Matthias II. Apparently, Matthias owed Ferenc, and therefore Elizabeth, a sizable debt. Eliminating Elizabeth meant that he no longer owed that debt, and convicting Elizabeth of crimes and sentencing her to death meant he had the right to seize her land. Currently, Elizabeth Bathory actually holds the Guinness World Record for most prolific female serial killer. There is a little symbolism surrounding this legend that got attributed over time that mainly has to do with a girl's transition to womanhood. Typically, adolescent girls are the ones who are thought to be playing the game of Bloody Mary, and the appearance of Bloody Mary has been thought to symbolize the onset of menstruation. Also, when Bloody Mary is depicted, she usually looks like an older woman, almost hag-like. It's thought that this could represent a fear of aging, but these are just theories. I think out of the few we talked about today, if we're going off of whose tale could inspire a legend such as Bloody Mary, I have to go with Bathory. Whether she committed these acts or not, her story and the accusations are just brutal and, well, (laughs) bloody. 
All right, let's dive into our last legend of the episode. It's a hideous beast with the head of a horse, the body of a kangaroo, the wings of a bat, and hooves like a pig that pierces the night with a blood-curdling scream. It's New Jersey's most famous resident, the New Jersey Devil. The New Jersey Devil, also known as the Leeds Devil, has been haunting the Pine Barrens of southern Jersey since 1735. It's said that in Leeds Point, New Jersey, in the 1700s, there was a woman named Deborah Smith who immigrated from England to the U.S. She married Jaff at Leeds, and together the two had 12 unruly children. Deb, or Mother Leeds as she's commonly referred to, was now preparing to give birth to her 13th child. Mother Leeds, completely exhausted, rightfully so, cursed the child. On a dark and stormy night during labor, Mother Leeds supposedly let out a cry and exclaimed, Let this child be the devil. Soon after the baby was born, it began to transform. It sprouted wings and a forked tail, its feet turned into hooves, and its face turned all shades of farm animal. The child thrashed its devilish tail at anyone who would come near it, eventually flying through the chimney of the home and into the pine barrens where it's been lurking for over 250 years. The Pine Barrens, also called the Pine Lands, is a sprawling 1.1 million acre landscape composed of cedar pine forests, sand, and swamps. It makes up 22% of New Jersey's land area. It is a vast, dense ecosystem that happens to be a great place for a demon to take shelter. There are a few variations to this legend. The one I'm sharing today has been the most widely reported. Some say Mother Leeds was a witch that consummated with the devil because, let's keep it real, this was the 1700s. If it was strange and unusual and a woman was involved, she was totally a witch. There have been numerous sightings of the Jersey Devil. Somewhere around 2,000 sightings have been reported since baby devils maiden voyage through the chimney, with the first one being Joseph Bonaparte. Yeah, that's right. Napoleon's friggin' brother. After Napoleon's downfall in the early 1800s, old Joey Bonaparte said toodles and fled to America, eventually ending up in Bordentown. It was said that Joseph was hunting game one snowy afternoon and spotted the Jersey Devil flying above him. In 1909, nearly 1,000 eyewitness sightings of the Devil were reported. While testing cannonballs at Hanover Mill Works in the Pine Barrens, Navy Commander Stephen Decatur reportedly saw the creature and shot it. The cannonball blew a hole through the devil, but apparently it was totally unfazed. Later, strange tracks were found in the fields, tracks that bloodhounds refused to pursue. There's been numerous reports of livestock going missing or being discovered dead by farmers, and countless reports from drivers and residents who've seen the creature. It's almost always described as a towering, dark, shadowy figure with hooves, wings, and a shrill cry that echoes through the pines. In 2004, Lori Winkleman and her son Glenn claimed to have encountered the New Jersey Devil. The Winkelmans had gone outside in their backyard to enjoy the freshly fallen snow. After some time, they went to make their way back in for dinner, but Lori and her son turned around because they apparently forgot to shut off some Christmas lights. While Lori was unplugging the lights, she noticed her son staring up into the trees with a terrified expression on his face. That's when she saw the figure a black shadow of a beast. 
Lori and her son ran back towards the house, and as they were trudging through the snow, she said she could hear and feel the devil swoop over their heads as it made its way onto the roof. They ran inside scared and shocked at what they had seen. In the morning, Lori's husband went up onto the roof to investigate and take pictures of the beast tracks imprinted in the snow. Lori showed the photo to a representative from the Division of Parks and Rec, but they couldn't identify them. Glenn and Lori estimated the tracks to be about six inches long and four feet apart in stride. Unfortunately, the angle of the images and the distance away from the tracks made the exact size and imprint tough to confirm. There are corroborated stories from actual credible sources on some of the sightings and encounters with the devil, but unfortunately there aren't credible images. There are, however, some comical ones. In 2015, in Bayville, New Jersey, along Route 9, there was a video and a photo released to the internet, which even made its way to ABC News. It was submitted by David Black, who swears it's not a prank and that he just genuinely was trying to get some answers to explain what he saw. Listen, no tea, no shade, no pink lemonade, but I have never laughed so hard at something in my whole life. I'm going to post this picture to the podcast Instagram because it is just bananas, okay? It looks like a fucking Muppet, like someone puppeteered, I think I just made that word up, but like someone puppeteered a Muppet across the night sky. Please let me know what you think because I'm sorry, this is not a demon. It looks friendly as any silhouette potentially could. There is not one menacing thing about this. It fucking flutters like a beautiful butterfly, but I'll let you decide for yourself. I'm going to wrap this legend up with a couple of fun facts. Other names for the Jersey Devil include Hoodle Doodle Bird and Woozlebug. <laughs> the New Jersey Devil is the New Jersey State Demon, and it's actually the only state to have one of those, so you go, Glen Coco. If you live in New Jersey and are particularly fascinated or intrigued by this legend, there is a fun little outing that's being held by Citizens United to protect the Maurice River and its tributaries, also known as CU Maurice River. They are hosting a family-friendly New Jersey devil hunt. One of their reps, Carla, was kind enough to give me some information about it. It's going to be held October 21st at 6 p.m. at the Manumuskin Preserve. There's going to be a campfire with hot dogs and s'mores, and a representative from the New Jersey Conservation is going to discuss the legend and other folklore by leading a fun and spooky nighttime hike. The meetup for this event is on private property, so the location of the event hasn't been shared yet, but I don't know. I think it sounds like a really fun time. If you're interested and want to find out the exact location, you can visit CU Maurice River's Facebook page or their website. I'll try to put some links in the show notes for this episode, as well as post any and all info on the podcast's Instagram. The suggested age for this event is six and up, but everyone knows their kids best, so you all know just what level of spooky your little ones can handle. Well, all right, that wraps up this week's episode. Be sure to follow the podcast on your favorite streaming platform and on Instagram at HorrorStoryPod. Thanks so much for joining me. See you next week and stay spooky, friends.